Welcome back. I'm Peter Wood, and I'm the author of Mud Between Your Toes, A Rhodesian Farm, which is a memoir about my life growing up in Zimbabwe, or formerly Rhodesia, in the 1960s and 70s. This is a podcast about family, independence, loss, and above all, identity. Thursdays was club night, and Bukwi's country club to be precise. This routine never changed, even during the Bush War. As kids, we hated it. It often meant wandering the corridors of the drafty club building, sugared up on Fanta and Sparletta and Willard's chips, and then bedtime in the back of the station wagon. Later in life, when we downsized to a sedan, the three of us kids were cramped up on the back seat, fighting, farting and getting bitten by dozens of mozzies. In the early days, we hated the club. When much younger, we were quite feral and Mandy and I were not too friendly with other children. We much preferred our own company. So those Thursdays at the club were... Well, they were a little bit painful, to be honest. Of course, as teenagers, we discovered alcohol. And our gang, known as the Hoods, would retire to the teenage rec room and get sloshed. The club committee clearly had little time for teenagers. The rec room was testament to that. A few mismatched chairs and an ancient hand-me-down vacuum tube radio with a magic eye. It didn't matter. We played corny Rhodesian music and drank. There's a convoy late loaded waiting ready Tomorrow for the border Far away from all the loved ones that are dearest Towards the unknown battle far away and I shall be aboard that truck tomorrow. It was the company that counted, and so long as the barman, Friday, kept us stocked with chibulis, we were just fine. I think as a young adult, I preferred the Ayrshire Club in Rafangora. The Rafangora crowd were more arty and liberal, but they also treated me as an individual. For once I wasn't John Wood's son or Duncan Wood's butt. I guess I was a bit sensitive about that, but that's how I felt. There's a myth that when the club first opened in the 1950s, a rope was drawn down the middle of the bar, one side for the landowners and the other side for the managers. I've never met anyone who actually remembers this, although certainly there was some tremendous snob value. As the son of a landowner, I guess I was off the hook. What I do know is that the three Duggar boys, John Wood, Ben Norton and Bill Francis, had their own bar stools at the far end of the bar. This never changed in 50 years. No one would dare sit there whilst that trio was in residence. 
the Mbukwe's club was definitely not one of the better-looking clubs in the district. The Horseshoe and the Ayrshire clubs were stunning. The Ayrshire even boasted a proper custom-built theatre that had hosted some international stars such as Eddie Calvert, the man with the golden trumpet, playing his hit tune, Zambezi, to packed audiences. Theatre also had some superb variety performances and plays brought up from the Reps Theatre in Salisbury. However, Ayrshire or Raffangora wasn't exactly the centre of the universe. And although Mbukwis didn't have a proper theatre, they did at least have a stage and had a much wider audience. The Ayrshire farmers may have been more artistic, but if you wanted the numbers, if you wanted bums on seats, you needed to play in Mbukwis. And they did at least have a pucker sprung stage with wings and a plush red velvet curtain. Granted, this doubled up as a badminton court during the week. But it did the trick and many local Amdram comedies, musicals and farces were enjoyed, such as Joe Orton's What the Butler Saw or Richard O'Brien's Rocky Horror Picture Show. Frankenfurter played beautifully by Gordon Chance. And it was to Mbukwis that many bands and travelling theatre groups gravitated, such as the South African group Four Jacks and a Jill. Their most popular melody, Master Jack, getting even the most unmusical farmer's feet tapping. It's a strange, strange world we live in Master Jack He taught me all I know And I'll never look back It's a very strange world And I thank you, Master Jack I wonder how many understood the lyrics. Many theories surrounded the meaning of the song. Was Master Jack a guru, a drug dealer? Was the song about politics or a love affair? In any case, Master Jack was a great song and definitely deserved its place in the US Billboard Top 20. It's a strange, strange world we live in, Master Jack. Down south in apartheid South Africa, the lyrics took on a greater meaning. In certain minds, the foreman is called Master Jack, and the song tells the story of a laborer who works diligently for his master for years and years, and then decides to go out on his own and exercise his desires and aspirations as an individual to be something other than a laborer. Ironic, isn't it? Change my mind. It's a strange, strange world we live in, Master Jack. The clubhouse was a solid, rather dreary granite building, huge, with a flat asbestos roof and deep, cool verandas of red oxide. 
but it was the grounds and the facilities that were truly impressive, set amongst imposing balancing rocks, avenues of flamboyant gum and masasa trees, and boasting stables, polo fields, rugby fields and pavilions, a beautifully maintained cricket pitch, and bowling green, squash courts, tennis courts, a swimming pool, and a world-class 18-hole golf course that had hosted the likes of Gary Player, Nick Price, and Mark McNulty, not to mention an ornamental lake filled with Pete Wood's lost golf balls. The Ambukwis Club also held the biggest rugby festival in the country, attracting hundreds of people from all over the country, Zambia and South Africa. My mum, together with Mona Moorcroft, Anne Francis, Gina Hyde and several other local housewives, did the catering. Many people came just for the food and to enjoy the beautiful countryside. Every Thursday we would pile into the car and drive through the Birkdale Pass, up onto the Mvukwi Plateau. The lights of the village would blink beyond the rolling downs of Mvukwis, a long, bright row of spotlights illuminating the GMB depot. It's always much cooler up here than on the farm, being a couple of thousand feet higher in altitude. Even the countryside changes. It still has some pretty impressive granite hills, but there's an Englishness to the countryside, less indigenous. Most of the land, as far as the eye can see, is cultivated. Huge swaths of rich, fertile land sweeping away either side of the narrow tarmac road. This is the breadbasket of the country. Centre pivots irrigating the fields of wheat and mealies 24 hours a day for as far as you can see, broken by the occasional rocky hill or copse of eucalyptus. Plough discs screwed to rusty posts and painted in gay colours indicated farms with mostly English names such as Galloway Estate, Sandwich, Frogmore Estate, Forrester Estate and Windsor. All around me the flat landscape is broken up sporadically with plantations of gum trees and fir trees, often leading up to elegant thatched farmsteads. In the golden dusk, this place looks like a scene from a Gainsborough painting. There's a scent of pine in the air, a smell both foreign to our lowland nostrils and yet achingly reminiscent of junior school where the long rows of pine trees afforded shade, hideouts, tree houses, pine cones for battle, pine sap for glue and pine needles for padding in our childish forts. We were easily pleased. A poster advertising the Hopelands regatta is tacked to the notice board in the post office. This was held every Easter on the Pemby Dam and, like the rugby festival, attracted visitors from far and wide, particularly boat enthusiasts. Hopelands was a worthy institution for children with Down syndrome and other disabilities. These delightful, smiling children were given free rein to wander the grounds, go on boat rides and get toffee apples stuck in their hair. It was a fabulous yet strange day out. For us locals, it was quite routine. 
we would happily purchase wonky coat hangers and wobbly ashtrays made by the kids. All proceeds went to a good cause. One year I won the raffle. The first prize was a basket full of Easter eggs. I wanted to keep them all, and I'm ashamed to admit it. But I very reluctantly handed it over to charity. For many people from out of town, spending a day at the Hopelands Regatta is an experience that they rarely forgot, especially if they weren't forewarned that the event was to raise money for the many disabled children gallivanting around the lake shoreline. It wasn't uncommon to see some unsuspecting child on a day out from Salisbury tearing past the stands being pursued by a posse of giggling Hopelands kids. When my mum first got married, John took her to the regatta. As usual, he omitted the fact that the place would be teeming with handicapped children. An hour or so into the day, she leant across to John and quietly asked, Woody, is there a problem up here in Mbukwe's? What are you talking about, Lib? asked John. Well, I can't help feeling that every second person is a little slow. Why are there so many dotty kids in Umbooks? John roared with laughter and explained the history of the regatta to a rather somewhat reassured mother. A short drive beyond Umbukwe's village and you arrive at the club, cruising up the long drive towards the low clubhouse, there was always some kind of sporting tournament taking place. I always saw golf as middle-aged and middle-class. Of course, I always had a laugh when playing with the hoods, with my gang. But there was always someone on the fairway behind us yelling at us to behave ourselves or stop walking on the damn green. So bloody serious. Reading back over my diaries, it describes those golfing weekends down to, well, down to a tee. Of course, my idea of hell was a golfing tournament weekend. They were taken so seriously. Often when I stayed with my friend and fellow hood, Mungo Hyde, whose farm was next to the club grounds, we would invariably be woken up at Sparrow Fart by Honk, Mungo's father, who, in his incredible but inimitable way, chivied and chased us through a brief ablution, a briefer breakfast, and then straight onto the cold, misty golf course at the Mbukwe's Club to take part in the two-day, oh-so-serious tournament. Incredible to believe, but as much as I dislike golf, there was always something quite magical about the Mbukwe's golf course, what with its towering granite balancing rocks looming over you, the massive mohobohobo trees, the ornamental lake, the thatched rest huts, but possibly, more importantly, the extraordinary condition of the greens, the fairways, and even the roughs. They rarely were international standard. I was always in the B team for obvious reasons and the entry in my diary states that my team included Grunter Robertson, George Moorcroft and yours truly. George lost five balls, I lost one in the dam, 
score 195 for me, 206 for George, and 177 for Grant. Bloody hell, boys. I hope that was for 18 holes. Clearly, there was room for improvement. The real fundies, which is Swahili for expert or craft person, were the Hammonds, and the little shits never let us forget it too. Licking our wounds, we would later retire to the Hyde's farm, Pemby Falls, and expunge this pent-up energy by driving around the bush in Honk's truck, having mock ambushes, suddenly breaking and diving like superheroes out of the truck and rolling into the bush. It seemed like a good idea at the time. It was all just silly buggers, I suppose. Food was never far from our minds, and we would find a copse of ripe mzunjis or a tree drooping with waterberries and gorge ourselves silly. Next day, true to form, we were back on the golf course, trying to redeem ourselves. That particular weekend, a sudden tropical downpour soaked us to the bone. And so once again, we retreated back to the hides, where we made ourselves resident at Honk and Gina's bar, playing a drinking game called Isipoko and swimming naked in the pool. I'm sure Honk and Gina would have been horrified. It strikes me as absurd when I see how precious parents can be with their children these days. God, we just seem to have a free reign and no one ever seemed to question us when we got pissed. Well, okay. I say that with a pinch of salt. Our antics didn't go unnoticed. Honk's revenge was to rudely wake us up and make us all go on an early morning run. I found that running was something I could do well. It was an individual sport. It didn't involve balls, just long legs and hardened bare feet. I think that weekend was the moment when I realised that I may not be a good rugby player or a golf player or even a competitive swimmer, but I was a damn good long-distance and middle-distance runner. Honk was genius at spotting this in kids. A spark of talent ignited an enthusiasm in him, and I'm eternally grateful to him. He had a knack for making you feel proud of yourself. This talent helped me through some of the more trying times in my high school years, particularly at a school that prided itself on sport. My other home from home in Mbukwis was with my best friend James Hughes at his stepfather's farm, Galloway Estate. The farm was quite different to Masitwi. Bill Francis, James's stepfather, was one of the best farmers in the country, and his farm was largely flat and arable. His machinery was always impressive, and I think at one stage he even had one of the biggest tractors in the world. James and I would go hunting for doves and guinea fowl. We were never particularly successful, but then again, we didn't try very hard. Mostly we smoked cigarettes and laughed about life, 
swam in the Insengedzi River and spent many a languid day down by their dam. It was easy to laugh about life with a character like James. I absolutely adored him. We had such strong opinions about everyone and everything. We didn't want to change the world. The world was just perfect as it was. We seemed invincible. Tragically, James died in a car crash at a very young age, and I miss those wonderful long hikes, arms draped over shoulders, Madison toasted hanging from the lips as we walked home beneath a ruddy orange sunset, quite literally to die for. We were young, and we were green as the leaf on the tree. For these were our salad days. Well, that's about it. Thank you so much for listening to me. And remember, you can tune into my new episodes of Mud Between Your Toes via iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher, Blueberry, and Pocket Casts. Don't forget, you can always buy a copy of my book on both Amazon and Kindle. And I also welcome comments by email on mudbetweenyourtoes at gmail.com. If you want to get involved and you have a good story to tell about those years in Rhodesia, and if you're brave enough to be interviewed for Mud Between Your Toes, feel free to write to me. Goodbye. <laughs>